which parts of your life feel highly influenced by God? Which parts are uh, more mundane? Where is the line between the sacred and the secular? Where does your Christian knowledge have a direct impact upon your behaviour? And when is it more semi-detached? Going to church and saying our prayers, sitting our desks or sending our kids to school, eating dinner with our friends or spending our money, attending a Bible study or a family celebration, reading the news, responding to the news. Where's the line? Where does the God bit start and stop? And where is the ordinary stuff? Well, the writer A.W. Tozer once wrote this. He said, It is not what a man does that determines whether his work is sacred or secular. It is why he does it. The motive is everything. Let a man sanctify the Lord God in his heart, and he can thereafter do no common act. All he does is good and acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In other words, if Jesus is Lord of our lives, then there is no such thing as ordinary life. But what does that look like in reality? Those are the questions, I think, at the heart of 1 Corinthians 8 to 10, which we're just beginning this section today. On a first reading, they might feel very far removed from our experience. But any apparent irrelevance, I think, is actually just a mirage. It only looks like that because we've fallen into the illusion of the sacred and the secular divide. For these first century believers in Corinth, the God stuff and the ordinary stuff was intimately tied together and it was impossible to pull apart. And despite appearances, the same is actually still true today. Which I think makes this chapter nothing like a boring exhibit in the ancient religion section of a dusty museum regardless of whether we're Christian people or not today. If you are here today and you're not yet a Christian person, not convinced about the Christian faith, you might like to think about our reading a bit like a signpost or a postcard. It's a signpost pointing to the truths that Christians believe in. It's a postcard, a little picture of the worldview that we Christians ought to live our lives by. And if you're, if you're a believer, a Christian person already, perhaps we should read it a bit like we'd read a slightly hard-to-read school report. Top marks for knowledge could do better for achievement. Because we make the same sorts of mistakes as the Corinthians did. And some of them were getting things seriously wrong. Especially when it came to applying what they knew about God to their day-to-day -day lives. Just a word, of, a word of warning as we begin. We're going to need to work quite hard this morning to draw the lines between Corinth and ourselves. And that's going to take a bit of time and a bit of concentration. But hopefully that hard work will pay off by the time we reach the end. So let's begin with the first of two lessons. Wise up. Christian knowledge by itself isn't sufficient for living the Christian life. Wise up. Christian knowledge by itself isn't sufficient for living the Christian life. Verse 1. Now about food, sacrificed to idols. So the Corinthians have written a letter to Paul, and it's likely that in that letter they both ask him questions about various aspects of church life, and they tell him some of the things they're doing in their church life. And this section 
chapter 8 to chapter 10, is his response to what they've told him about eating food sacrificed to idols. Now, idol worship was a very big part of the fabric of their lives. It was the, the stuff of their culture. And just as we have a meal at the heart of our worship, which we're going to celebrate later on, the Lord's Supper, so food was an essential part of worshipping these idols. And the question for new Christians in Corinth must have been quite simple. Can they eat this idol food or not? For example, imagine a man used to go to the temple of Aphrodite to worship the goddess. Can he still go to that temple after he's become a Christian? Can he go to an event at that temple hosted by his business colleagues? After all, it's a business dinner, and he's going to feel the loss in his pocket if he breaks those connections. Or imagine a woman is invited to her neighbor's house for dinner with friends, or to a temple dining room to celebrate a wedding. Can she eat what's on the menu? Was that nice-smelling joint of lamb offered in sacrifice earlier in the day? Will prayers be offered over it before they tuck in? Will she be invited again if she politely says, oh, I don't think I should go, or I'll just have the roast potatoes instead? You see, there are real issues for the Christians in Corinth, but why have they written to Paul about them? I think that's a really important question to answer if we're going to apply this passage well to ourselves. Let's try to discover the answer as we keep going through the text. Verse 1 again. We know that we all possess knowledge. Now, I think it's likely that that expression is a little catchphrase for at least some of the Corinthians. They are proud people. They're proud of their knowledge. They assume they know how to live the Christian life. And then Paul sharply punctures that pride. Knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. Now, a few times already in this book, Paul has warned them of the dangers of an overinflated ego. And now he does so again. He says love is the essential accompaniment to knowledge. Just as he'll write later on famously in chapter 13, if I have all knowledge but do not have love, I am nothing. In fact, what the Corinthians know isn't even the most important source of knowledge. Did you notice the surprise in verse 3? But whoever loves God is known by God. Well, I think that's a surprise, isn't it? Wouldn't we have expected something more like this? Whoever loves God will use their knowledge to love their neighbor and build them up. You see, that would certainly seem to fit quite well with the logic. But I think that surprise is here to make an important point. It is far more important to be known by God personally than to know exactly the right stuff about God. The reality about, that Christianity is about a relationship with God must radically affect the way we interact with the world and with each other in all sorts of areas of, of life, including, for these people, the issue of food sacrificed to idols. Verse 4. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came 
and through whom we live. It's a wonderful and rich description here of the Christian faith. Paul takes that famous Jewish belief, you know, the one expressed in the Shema of Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and he makes it Christian. But Paul isn't really interested in proving that Jesus is God. Paul knows that his readers already know that. Now, what he's doing is he's agreeing with them, at least to a point, about what they think about idols. Because they've got it spot on. Idols are nothing. They know what the prophet Isaiah said. Isaiah 41, 29. See, they are all false. Their deeds amount to nothing. Their images are but wind and confusion. He's agreeing with them to some extent. So if they know the truth about idols and the truth about Jesus, why have they written to Paul about idol food? That's the question, isn't it? Well, I don't think they are asking Paul, what should we do about idol food? We're confused about how to live for Jesus in a culture full of idols. No, much more likely, remember, they are proud people. They are telling him what they are already doing. We know what to do about idol food, Paul, and our theology proves that it's the right way to do it. And Paul senses that it's time to step in and correct them because he sees that used thoughtlessly without love, Christian knowledge can be a seriously dangerous thing. Verse 7. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. Now, who are these people? Now, I don't think there can be people, Christian people, who don't know the fundamental truths about Jesus and the Father. They could hardly be Christian if they didn't believe that the Father is the source of all things and that Jesus is the only way to get to know him. Instead, these seem to be Christian people whose consciences are still tuned in to the idols behind the sacrifices, and they cannot break that connection in their minds. And so if any of them join in and eat that idol food, they're taking a step onto a slippery slope. You see verse 7, since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But their conscience, their moral compass is, is demagnetized by what they do. It no longer points due north. Instead of clearly knowing what is right and wrong, they end up confused and in mortal danger, as we'll see later on. You see, many, we, we might assume that the church in Corinth was divided into weak Christians and strong Christians especially if we're familiar with what Paul writes elsewhere in Romans 14. See, the strong Christians who know the truth, that idols are nothing, and the weak Christians whose consciences haven't caught up with their newfound faith. But do you notice in chapter 8, the language of the strong isn't even used. And Paul seems to have no interest in correcting these weak Christians or bringing them up to speed. So he's not giving advice to two parties who about something that may be right or may be wrong, like he does in Romans 14. Now, he, he seems to be handing out a stern telling off to proud know-it-all Christians instead. Because that seems to be the division in this church, not the strong and the weak, the know-it-alls and the not-so-sures. Those who justify their actions by their right-on theology and those not quite so sure and in danger of being led back to idol worship, which is always wrong. 
No, what matters most is someone standing before God. Paul says food makes no difference, really. Verse 8, we are no worse off if we do not eat and no better if we do. But the state of our moral conscience, of our, of our conscience, that compass within us, which is always searching out what is right and what is wrong, that makes all the difference in the world. Which is why, before he's really got into the details at hand, Paul lays down this first lesson loud and clear. Christian knowledge by itself isn't sufficient for living the Christian life. It's as if these three chapters, chapters 8, 9, 10, are a bit of a chess match between Paul and the church. They've kind of made their first move. And then Paul proceeds strategic move by strategic move to checkmate their pride and show them how vital it is that love accompanies knowledge. And then his next move, second half of this chapter, is a stern warning to them. And also, I think, to us. Secondly, watch out. Christian knowledge can destroy other Christians if used in unchristian ways. Well, we've grown used to a whole load of new warning signs, haven't we, over this last year? Wash your hands, stay apart, all that sort of thing. Paul begins this new section with a warning sign of his own. Stay alert. Trip hazard ahead. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. You see, the know-it-alls, they thought they were entitled to carry on attending these idle feasts. After all, why decline an invitation to a good meal when everyone else knows that idols are nothing at all? Why risk damaging their family and social connections? What's the big deal with a little idolatrous compromise every now and then? I'll tell you why, says Paul. Verse 10. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? Just imagine a Christian brother or sister sees you tucking in at that idol feast at the temple of Aphrodite. Isn't there a danger that they'll draw the logical conclusion in their mind and think that idolatry isn't such a big deal? You may think you're building them up, but actually you're tearing them down. Because that is the cutting irony hidden away in, in this verse in our translation. Emboldened to eat is actually the same root word as back in verse 2, love builds up. It's building someone up to eat. We might say fortifying them to eat food sacrificed to idols. You see, the know-it-alls, they haven't thought through about the possible consequences of their actions. Verse 11, so this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Paul's strong language here makes it really clear that this is nothing to do with kind of upsetting a Christian with a tender conscience. Of course, that is unloving in itself, and we want to do what we can to avoid that. But it is not half as bad as setting another believer off on the road that leads to hell. Many new buildings have been built up around our church here, haven't they, in recent years. They're shiny and bright and exciting. Maybe some of you live in some of them. But what if those buildings were structurally unsound? Others had used materials that were fundamentally dangerous, like the cladding on the Grenfell Tower. The authorities, when they found out, would have no option but to tear them down. That is the warning we need to grasp for verse 11. 
If we build the Christian life or encourage anyone else to build the Christian life with the material of idolatry, we are building a death trap, an edifice that one day will be destroyed and demolished by God. What is more, verse 12, if our example leads another believer back into the swamp of idolatry, we are striking a vicious blow to their conscience, not just upsetting them, but leaving them in a place where they really have no idea any longer what is right and what is wrong. If I might put it like this, putting flammable cladding on their lives and a match to our own lives too, because we are sinning against the Christ who died for that precious brother or sister. It is a serious warning, isn't it? So what should we and the Corinthians do in response? Well, Paul sets himself up as an example. As someone who has taken to heart this serious warning, verse 13, Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. He's exaggerating to make his point. Not all idle food was meat, could have been other things as well, but he says he will never eat meat at all, full stop, ever again, because he doesn't want to cause another Christian to fall. Because the principle is clear, knowing the right things about isn't enough for living the Christian life. Sacrificial love is what is required. And so for the sake of his brothers and sisters, Paul won't go not just within two meters of idolatry, but within a million miles of it, ever again. Well, I wonder if this is where we're now in a place where hopefully some of this hard work on this passage can help us think through how might I apply it to my life or to our church's life today. Especially if we ask ourselves these two questions up on the screen. What are the idols of our culture? And how might we lead others into idolatry by our example? Because we shouldn't apply this passage woodenly. For example, to jump from it and say, what should a Christian do about eating halal food? I actually spoke to a mission partner of ours during the week who works in the Middle East about exactly that question. And he said that even for Muslims in that part of the world, they wouldn't tend to use this passage to answer that question. Because the line is not that much straighter from Corinth to the Middle East than it is from Corinth to London. What's more, I think if we go down that halal line or the what do I do if my Hindu friend invites me around for dinner line, well, we're actually falling into that sacred and secular illusion once again, the mirage that some parts of life belong to God and other parts of life don't. Now, we need to remember that London is not actually very different to Corinth, despite appearances. There are still, verse 5, many gods and many lords in our world today. They might just be harder to spot. And so we need to ask, where are they hiding? And how might I lead others to worship them by my example. For example, we know that money is not God. It is a gift from him. But how do we speak about it? What do we do with it? Might our fretting over it or our hoarding of it or our selfish spending of it lead others to bow down to it? Might we lead others into the idolatry of wealth or pleasure or security? What about reputation? We know that what God thinks of us is what really counts. But how often do we do things to please others, not God? Do we ever massage the truth 
to portray an image of ourselves that we want others to see? And might our actions lead our brothers and sisters to see the idol of reputation as somehow more worthy of worship than God? Or consider education and career. We know that our children's lives are in God's hands. We know we can trust God for our daily bread. But do our decisions reflect that knowledge or do they reveal a heart that worships the gods of success and status and power at the same time? And might somehow, by our example, we lead others to bow down towards those shrines as well? And what about the idol of safety and health? I hope you don't mind if if we think about this idol for just a little longer as we come to a close. I wonder if you just listen to me from a safe distance as I take a slightly nervous step into what feels like shark-infested water at the moment. We know we are ultimately safe with Christ. We know it is our eternal health that really matters. But do our actions as individuals or do our actions as churches reflect that knowledge over the past year? Has it been consistent with what we know to be true? Now, I must never use the pulpit for politics. I don't want to do that. But I do want us just for a moment to consider how God's word might speak into this extraordinary time in which we're living. Because I wonder if, like me, you've ever felt as if life in in COVID times has actually felt very, very religious. Just consider how lockdown appears to promise not eternal life, but an extension of life and salvation. Think about how hundreds of thousands of people praised the NHS but would never even consider praising the God who gives us life. Ponder for a moment some of the seemingly illogical rules that we've had to follow. For example, I can sit down in a restaurant and take my mask off, but I get up and I walk to the loo and I have to put it on again. Is it just possible that for some of us, some people, the mask has become a magic charm to ward off evil? Is it just possible that that COVID and lockdown has turned us back to some sort of pre-Christian superstition? See, if so, might that have happened because we as a society have neglected to worship God and bow down to the idol of safety and health instead. The founder of the Libri Christian community, Francis Schaeffer, wrote a book in 1984 entitled The Church at the End of the 20th Century. And in it, he wrote about the way that science had lost its connection to God. I was struck by the way he put it in a quote I discovered this week. He said, scientific conclusions are determined by the way a scientist wants the results to turn out sociologically. It is a science that will manipulate society by the manipulation of scientific facts. Beware, therefore, of the movement to give the scientific community the right to rule. More and more, you see, we live in a post-Christian world. And the majority of people around us, including, I imagine, the majority of the scientists advising the government, don't subscribe to what Paul and the Corinthians knew to be true. Do you remember verse 6, that wonderful truth of the Christian faith? For us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. If we take God out of the picture, is it just possible that we go back to the dark ages of superstition. Well, I just wonder if this last year we have seen that process accelerate as the idols of safety and health 
that many gods and many lords have quickly jumped into that space rightly belonging to the one true God. Now our friends and neighbours might bow down at those idol shrines, but can we do as well? If so, might our example unwittingly, not deliberately, I'm sure, unwittingly lead other believers to worship those idols as well? Do we need to hear the warnings of this passage? Do we need to change our lives as a result, perhaps? Well, it's been a hard passage, I think, to understand. And the lessons contained within it may be even harder to apply. And I might not be right on some of those conclusions that I've drawn. And um, I'd love to speak with you further if you disagree or anything I've said, particularly towards the end, or if you've got any questions about it. But I do think these big lessons still hold. We need to wise up because Christian knowledge by itself isn't sufficient for living the Christian life. And we need to watch out because Christian knowledge can destroy other Christians if used in unchristian ways. Despite appearances, the sacred and the secular are no less divided today than they were in Corinth. If we know the truth about God, then that knowledge must impact every area of our lives for the glory of God and the good of his people, which is exactly the thought, actually, that Paul concludes this long section in, in two chapters' time, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the Church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Should we finish with a prayer? Let's just pray quietly ourselves and for one another. And then Rich is going to come back up and lead us in our prayers.